Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the creators of gave us writing for Godot and Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, "One day, you know, you'll be doing that." Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Keith Robinson is one of our finest actors. His repertoire of characters include the great clowns of Shakespeare. He's been admired for his tremendous physicality in realising these endearing fools and jesters, and for his dependability to tell a good story. As a member of the ensemble at Belvoir Theatre, he has contributed to the success of milestone productions that include Hamlet, The Tempest, The Alchemist, Night on Bald Mountain, and Picasso at the Lapin Algiers. Extensive theatre credits also include the epic Nicholas Nickleby with the Sydney Theatre Company and ventures into musical theatre with the premier Australian production of Les Miserables. Another terrific accomplishment saw Keith co-write with Tony Taylor the silly comic romp The Popular Mechanicals, a fond valentine to the determined amateur acting troupe of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. In 2006, his life upon the boards looked like being snatched away, when he was diagnosed with the neurological condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome. His personal expression as an actor became compromised with limited mobility and the necessity of a wheelchair. Keith is a determined thespian and in 2016 he returned to the Belvoir stage as Feste in a production of Twelfth Night. TV gigs have followed too. Next week, he is once again on the Belvoir stage as Leonid Gaev in The Cherry Orchard by Anton Chekhov. Keith is immensely entertaining and terrific company. He is passionate, funny and tremendously insightful in describing an eventful life on and off the stage. It's very high-tech. High-tech for whiz-bang. Whiz-bang? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Keith... I feel like I've known you a long time, although we've only met once. Yes, I feel exactly the same. Although I'm sure we were at a party together, like, literally a hundred years ago, and, um... Can't be a hundred, I'm only (laughs) seventy. Um, and and perhaps we sort of glancingly met then. Yeah. In my head, anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I think also because, um, you know, you bring such joy to, to, to many of your friends on Facebook through your daily postings of tidbits and laughs. and. Uh... Well, I'm a recent um, joiner to Facebook. At the beginning of COVID, I sort of thought, well, if I'm ever going to do it, now's the time. And I sort of dove in and went like a bat out of hell. And I'm the self-appointed court jester. And I don't feel my day is done unless I've posted, you know, Four in the morning and four in the evening to get a laugh. Is that they come at uh, immense regularity, I must say. Yeah. Which is and I, I, I get asked often, you know, where do you find these things? And I've never answered. <laughs> <laughs> Your secret. <laughs> so Facebook, is, is that your most used app on the phone? 
Oh yes, I only do the one. I um uh, social media. I have become the person I used to scoff at, who literally never has the phone out of their hand. And but I, until COVID, I sort of almost poo-pooed the notion of social media or the the the, the need or the want to publicly chronicle every living moment and not that that's what my contribution is although I do write little pieces from time to time normally it's you know I mean funny memes are the currency of Facebook and um <laughs> that's what I do you can't beat them no. well it's funny you know because somebody said um oh you should collect them together and do a, a, a you know the collected COVID memes of Keith Robinson and I don't think they would be those, you know, two-second laughs that you get from an image or, or one or a pithy one line. Out of context of scrolling on your phone, mm. I don't think they'd be anywhere near as funny. Yes. You know, I think the, the context of, of scrolling down on your phone and on Facebook is, is what provokes the laugh. Outside of that... Although, I must say, I, I am very tempted to do a glossy coffee table book of the collected memes of Keith Richards' eternal life. They are, I mean, there are so many of them, and they're all very, very funny. What makes you laugh? A lot. Well, hmm, what makes me laugh? Do you know, can I just sidebar slightly? Yeah. Last night, I watched... Um, uh, uh, the 1995 Peter Allen documentary, uh, which I'd seen before, back in when it first came out, uh, The Boy from Oz, and there was a, they they did had some footage of uh, when he was in the Australian This Is Your Life, and his mother and sisters were there, and I mean you get your laugh from your parents. I mean his mother, they just all had full throated, throw your head back. You know, and um, they were all laughing in in a in a in a, in a yeah. Well, I'm repeating myself. Full throated way that was so lovely. And my father was a big laugher. He was somebody who. I mean, we've all got dad jokes, and we, we've all had dads who have dad jokes. But dad was always on the uh, one part of his brain and I think mine does the, uh, following on from him runs parallel to whatever's going on just trying to clock what the funny angle might be of it or the you know the the ludicrous nature of something. yeah or, or the one liner or the you know the or the smarter you know just looking for the 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 um the comedy in a situation and dad was a great laugher I apparently have got his laugh, and um, in fact, whenever I answer my intercom, hearing my own voice through the the speaker, the speaker, yeah. it's like I'm hearing Dad. So I, I, you know, I'll go hello, and it's like exactly how Dad used to answer the phone. It's like so I can still hear my Dad by answering my own intercom. <laughs> 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 Laughter is the best medicine, isn't it? It's certainly up there. I mean, really. I, I mean, I don't laugh at the drop of a hat at anything, but I mean, I enjoy 
I'm glad I've got an easy laugh. Mm. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that I am, um, uh, that it doesn't have to be screwed out of me. Mm. I enjoy laughing. I mean, the endorphins happen, you know. I mean, there is nothing quite so gorgeous as being crying with laughter. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Having a bellyache, you know. Yeah. So... Yeah, the muscles and, of your your stomach have just uh, <laughs> been taught so much. Mm. Yeah, as an actor, you have been noted for your great comic performances as one of our great clowns, especially in Shakespeare. Do you have a favourite Shakespeare play? All of the ones that I've been in, um, I, I had the great good fortune to be in what I think of as an iconic production of The Tempest, directed by Neil Armfield at Belvoir in, I don't know, in the early 90s. But it, it was revived and we took it on tour. It was a, just the most stunning, beautiful production. There were... Um, uh, John Bell was the first Prospero, then when it was brought back it was Barry Otto, Gillian Jones was Ariel, um, I was uh, Stefano the Drunken Butler, and it was just the most beautiful set design. It was just one of those perfect productions, you know, it was a joy, an absolute joy. And that play is a beautiful play. Can I tell you something? I'm just, I mean, I'll, I'll propose Shakespeare. A few friends of, um, was not my idea, so I don't claim any um, of the kudos for it, but um, uh, a group of um, me and five other friends, three guys and, and, and three females, we have recently started to, in chronological order, meet one Sunday a month and read Shakespeare's plays. So in three and a half years, we'll, we'll have done it. But Because, um, I mean, obviously there are 37 plays, 36 plays. Um, you know, I might be very familiar with, say, 10 of them. You know, yeah. there are an awful lot that really I've never read and I've never seen. Mm -hmm. um, so that's... And so and we've, it's just a lovely thing to do, just to, to read... Alternating roles, you know, just like just take okay, you get that, and you know, not not characterising, just reading for the language, and um, it's, it's such a lovely, what a wonderful idea. thing to do. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and so I'm very happy to be part of that. So after three years, you'll move on to the plays of Neil Simon. <laughs> well, we could do worse. Yeah, <laughs> playwrights, uh, many to be had, many comic playwrights. Mm. The Tempest was his last play, I think, wasn't it? Said to be. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Tell me about uh, an evening in 2006 when you were attending uh, Twelfth Night uh, in the Sydney Festival by a Russian company. Oh. All male. Oh, yes. Company. I see that. There's, Twelfth Night is coming to my life in so many um, ways. I mean, I didn't know which one you were referring to yes, just then. Yes. But um, this is quite a significant. Well, they've yes. all been significant in their own way. I yeah, think. no, you're leading me to what this is going to be about, and I'm quite happy to go there. That was one of the most sublime productions, top five theatre nights of my life. It was an all-male cast directed by Declan Donnellan of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night at the Theatre Royal for, as you say, the 2006 Festival of Sydney. And it was 
they're all Russian. It was in Russian with subtitles. Um, I'd been in a production of it, or two productions of it by that stage, so, you know, I thought I was the full bottle on Twelfth Night, you know. But I wasn't. I spent the entire night going, oh, yes, of course. Oh, God, God, do. You know, <laughs> it was sublime. It was so fabulous and clear and funny and right. And, uh, and the other part of that story is that we all leapt to our feet for, to give it the standing ovation it deserved. And we were clapping as hard as we could, except I realised that I wasn't, didn't have the strength in my left arm to really clap as hard as I wanted to. And that was, I thought I'd pulled a muscle in, my, in the back of my shoulder. And um, three weeks later, I got a, the diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which put me in a hospital where I stayed for five and a half months or hospital and rehab backwards and forwards and in a wheelchair ever since. So that was, um, you know, a wonderful night in the theatre, but a, a, a seminal one in terms of my life, which went, my world became the size of a golf ball in, in the matter of three weeks. And I went from running around the block to not being able to walk in three weeks as all the muscles what Gillian Barre, although more correctly what I because many people the reason that we're not so aware of it is because most people get Gillian Barre syndrome it's universally mispronounced as Gillian Barre is Guillain Barre and make a full recovery and like 12 months later you'd never know that they'd perhaps been on a ventilator with one eyelid going you know I'm exaggerating slightly but it can it all the major all the muscles just power down because the message the ner the the myelin the coating of the nerves like the plastic around a copper wire gets degenerated it's an autoimmune the body turns on itself and the messages get don't get between the brain and the muscle so it causes weakness and i made a partial recovery to the point where i can do for myself and I, I, I live by myself and, and I have assistance but I don't need you know I, my daily life I can I can handle by myself thank goodness yeah um but I'm in a wheelchair there's no two ways about that which I hate yeah but I mean I'm a slow developer so that was 2006 what's that that's 15 years it's a little 15 years ago is it 14 years ago. Yeah, 15, yeah. yeah. And, um, that's right. And it's only relatively recently, say, I don't know, in the last two and a half years, that I've actually become cool with the wheelchair. As in, this is an extension of me. This is part of me. It, it was almost like a second coming out, which took me quite a while as well, the first time. But... In terms of, because initially there are all these assaults on your masculinity and your, you know, the, the, I wanted to carry around a sign going, I'm not sick, because I, I mean, I didn't feel ill or unwell or it was just I didn't have muscle power. Right. And uh, getting used to the wheelchair, which, I mean, I will never love the wheelchair, but I am absolutely cool with 
it in terms of this is me. You know, if you don't like it, lump it. The wheelchair is part of me. And that ownership of that identification took me a long time. Mm. Tremendously confronting thing as a human being. What was it like as an actor? Well, I thought my acting life was over. Right. I mean, you know, I, I mean, and, and it was for a goodly number of, for a good number of years. Um, look, it took me a long time to even want to go and be an audience member. It was just too painful. To, to extended go to, grieving period. Yeah, really. You know, my, it was, and it happened so quickly. The rug was just pulled out from under me, and I was going along fine, you know, and um, work-wise, and 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 to have that just, and also, for better or worse, I almost totally identified. I mean, that was that was. I mean, that was who I was. I was an actor, and that was my self-identification. Almost 100 percent, yeah, um, for better or worse. And to have that just ripped away was was well. I mean, I don't remember feeling shock as much as not quite. It was like it was happening to somebody else almost. And um, but then, God love him, Eamon Flack, my man the current artistic director and was four years ago asked me to play Festy in his production of Twelfth Night at Belvoir Street and suddenly because society had moved on like there was inclusivity is a thing now yeah you know 13 years ago it wasn't and I honestly a very recent thing too mm, a very recent absolutely and I mean it's not that I thought other people would think I could I thought I couldn't you know, I thought, oh, that's it for me. Um, oh, well, I had a good run. You know, it's over. And um, the but the the world has done a one eighty, and uh, well, our particular society in terms of things like mental health, disability, um, difference. You know, we've got a long way to go, but but it, there's no question. Steps are being. It's the dawn of a new day. Uh, totally, and um, and there is. Um, an acceptance, and it's a generational thing, thing too, in terms of like, I mean, my agent, uh, you know, just in terms of uh, the world's changed in the last 10, 20 years in terms of uh, indigenous and ethnic diversity involvement in the arts. Um, it's just a different landscape, um, and which is great. You know, it's, it's, it's a reflection of, of current Australia. I couldn't be happier. Um, it was great seeing an actor who I just I'm going all over the place here there was a wonderful actor called Monsoor ah, I can't remember his second name he, but he was the, the male actor in Stop Girl and you know when you see somebody you're completely unfamiliar with yep. and they are excellent yep. I mean he was excellent it was, it was so I was, I was so happy you know that there are people out there who can when given the opportunity, grab it and do it well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so exciting when we see an actor that we've not seen work before because we can invest so much more into that performance, I think, other than here's wonderful Keith Robinson in another role and he does this well and I'm loving him work. But to see uh, a new actor is always exciting. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially given just what I was talking about, the, um, uh, I mean... 
I, I was out of the loop for 10 years and there's a whole generation of, of actors I'm just not familiar with, right. you know, yeah. um, who I go, you know, so everybody's fresh for me at the moment, but uh, of a certain age. But, um, yeah, no, it was, it was gratifying. Did you grow up in Sydney? Were you a Sydney boy? No, I was um, born in New Zealand and spent the first 10 years of my life there. And then my mother, who had... My parents are both English, and my, but my mother, when she came to Australia as a 17-year-old girl, had spent a year in WA on her way to New Zealand. And it was obviously a time in her life when she was 17, 18. It was sun, sand. And so my mother, from the moment she married my father and had children, I think was determined that we were going to get back to... She was going to get back to Australia. So... I mean, I take my hat off to them. In 1968, my two young parents, with three young children, 10, 8 and 6, just, you know, rented out the house and went, right, we're going to Australia. And we're going to go on an extended driving, working holiday and see what happens. So landing in Sydney, I guess. Landed in Sydney, got a car, drove all the way around to uh, Geraldton in WA, where my mother's wow. best girlfriend, you know, lived. And, um, so and across then, the Nullarbor. Hmm? Across the Nullarbor. Across the Nullarbor. Which... What an experience. At that time, there was still an unsealed section. <laughs> I mean, that was um, probably only about 200 miles or whatever, but I mean, a short bit of it. But it was, you know, gravel. It was dirt road. That's mm. uh, ageing me. Um, and then my parents bought the lease of, on a lark or a dare, I think, of the of a roadhouse up the northwest of WA on the Shark Bay turnoff, the Ampole Overlander Roadhouse, and um, which was you know one town, three hundred miles south, and the other town three hundred miles north. You know, Geraldton and Carnarvon between those two. I remember going up to Monkey Mire. Well, exactly. Yeah, That's yeah. so you turn off there. And there's all these roadhouses which are scattered along the state, but miles apart. Well, in fact, the, uh, back in my day when we were there there was the uh, the opposition were only 30 miles down the road right. but they were the we and them were the they were the mobile billabong and we were the ampole overlander <laughs> <laughs> and um they were the only two roadhouses between Geraldton and Carnarvon so which was just fantastic we had kangaroos and emus and this whole melange you know sort of, of zoo of pets and, um, you know, there'd be goat hunters for pet food and that. And then, you know, utes had come back with carcasses strung up on the back. But if they'd accidentally killed a mother with a little goat, they'd give the little goats to us. So we had these fabulous... I mean, goats are the most wonderful pet. I mean, they're like as loyal and as... Like dogs, I had a particular one, naturally enough, called Goaty. And um, it, was, it just followed me. It was at my heel. Yeah. All day. It was just the most beautiful pet. Yeah. Gorgeous. So you had your siblings. What about mates? Because I imagine there no, were, it was just us. no access we to We did School kids. of the Air. All right. And um, correspondence. How did that work? Oh, great. I mean, I can't... To be honest, I can't remember doing any school during that period. I can remember once sitting at a table doing a... You know, like a some something that had to be posted in. Um, but didn't do us any harm. I mean, we all came back and were put into the year ahead was that, is of that, our age. Surely it wouldn't be six hours on the microphone, would it? Was it no, 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 no. It was, it was absolutely... so I, I'm just thinking of, you know, <laughs> the recent year when classes were on Zoom. Oh, right. 
and mm. and kids uh, concentration span would only last no so no long. no it was mainly um correspondence and then maybe once a day for half an hour on the radio on the two-way radio you know um I can't, to be honest I can't totally remember but um I do remember once being told you know because you had to um answer with your radio call sign you know Roger BKC <laughs> <laughs> I remember going, the teacher going yes Keith give somebody else a go <laughs> you know laser voice from 200 meters okay. so was it what did you play consist of uh, we had our bikes and we'd go out on long tracks into the bush and I mean it was an idyllic time and a seminal time for the entire family the stories that became the Robinson family dinner table stories were in large part of that time it was such I mean it was red earth country it was it, it, I mean it was one of the it was a 24 hour petrol station with a you know um, trucky stop cafe restaurant yeah. um and there were mum and dad there was another young couple that they employed to you know help um but it was just us and it was great do you have a tv tv <laughs> <laughs> no, no TV. we didn't have a phone right i mean in fact when we were there it coincided with the PMG, what is now Telstra, putting in the coaxial cable up to Exmouth, to the Northwest Cape, and they did it in hundred mile stretches. Um, and their camp was, you know, ten miles down the road, and they bought all their diesel from Dad, from us, and you know, Dad paid cash for his houses ever since. He never went into debt. Wow. Um, it was pure luck. That he, that it coincided with that time when there was this massive diesel petrol account that was fobbed into their lap. So, did the family eventually move to Geraldton or Perth? Uh, well, when it came time for me to go to high school, I didn't want to go to boarding school, and also mum and dad were, you know, it was hard work, twenty four seven job. Exactly, and they, they, you know, they, they were rooted, and um, and still young. And so we moved, we went back to New Zealand, you know, cleaned up things there, and then came back to WA, but to Perth, and, but then Dad bought a news agency in a little town called Mandurah, which had 2,000 residents. I mean, now it's like Wollongong or Newcastle. And that's south of Perth, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly, about an hour and 20 south. Mm. And um, on the, it was a seaside town, um, very pretty little place, and and um, it is now you know probably, I don't know quarter of a million people or whatever you know, it's it's a satellite city, um, so things have changed. So we I, we I, my high school years were spent there, and I went to high school at Pinjarra Senior High School, where all the various districts were bussed into a, a central hub, um, which was great. You know, I was just talking to somebody the other day, um, and they said had asked me did I get bullied at school and I went no I escaped that and I said and what's more I can't remember anybody else being bullied either it was a different era mm. and we all you know there were the various groups and whatnot. it wasn't totally homogenous but um, we all accepted each other yeah. you know and as it should be yeah it was um, it was 
mind you. Yeah, I mean, we had a couple of good teachers, but you know, some of them were a bit clock on, clock off. Yeah. Whatever. It was a country high school. It was great. Yeah. So, what were the artistic influences at this age? My mother, right. because she had been an actress, um, just starting to get professional radio work in New Zealand when she got married oh. in 1955, and you know that was just bad luck for her, and it was a it was a sadness for her her whole life that. Um, she didn't get to have that, so she lived vicariously through me in some ways because she was very involved in in little theatre, as amateur theatre is called in New Zealand, you know, and Amdram here, and got me involved in in stuff when I was, I don't know, thirteen, fourteen. Well, I believe your first role was in The King and I. Well, that's right. <laughs> I was I was Louis Leon Owens, you know. I whistle a happy tune, and um, it was great, you know. It was um. And it was, it was something that I, and this is important, and I don't mean it to sound big-headed or in any way anything like that. It was something I got praised for, you know, and because um, I wasn't a sporty guy and I was you know, but, but that I got praised for and that's what you know and, and I, I loved it well it's important when you're a kid I think totally you, it start, you start to form <coughs> your own identity absolutely mm. and I can remember you know somebody, I was having a chit chat the other day with somebody about kindness and um, a word of kindness you never know how it's going to be taken or what importance is going to be attached to it by the person it's, it's you know dealt to and I remember this guy when I was about, I don't know, 14, 15 perhaps, and he was from Perth and he was a professional radio producer. He was like, oh, oh my God, you know, a proper person. And he was a producer with ABC Radio Drama or something with ABC Radio in Perth. And he came down just for an afternoon to have a talk. I can't even remember what it was about. To some of the people within the local drama group one afternoon it was you know a cup of tea and a, and a sandwich something and there must have been a, a script reading because he sent a letter to the person who had invited him down the you know, honorary secretary or whatever just you know thank you for the hospitality blah 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 P.S. that young boy is good and he didn't have to say that no. I, I, and but that really meant something to me and not that I wasn't already going along that path but that unsolicited um, comment from somebody who I attached um, you know sort of who, who a was professional. a professional mm -hmm. God's sake and um, it really stayed with me you know it really meant it, it, I held that very very close for quite some time you know yeah um, it was lovely. It was a lovely thing. He didn't have to say that. and um, But it spurred you on. It did, and I don't think he even had, you know, asked, please tell this. It was just, you know, a comment to the to the woman that he'd written the letter to. But, um, yeah, no, it's important, I think, um, to, 
to have those moments of unsolicited um, encouragement, praise, and I don't mean the, the all out, yes, darling, you're fabulous from parents, that sort of thing, you know, over praised or over encouraged. But uh, yeah, just figuring out your way. Are you harbouring any other career aspirations at this time? Or are you always decided that you want to be an actor? Well, I went to uni because it was expected of me and I expected it of myself, you know, after school. But I spent almost all my time with the University of Dramatic Society, which was very active, very good. We had professional directors oftentimes. Is this UWA? UWA, yeah. University of Dramatic Society. This would be... 76, 77, 78, and I just dove in. It was a golden era of, of, the, of UDS in UWA, and, you know, my studies went by the wayside, and I pulled out, I can remember, I failed a subject at the end of second year, and that was the beginning of the end, you know, and I just, so I went into third year, and I was trying to make up that unit, and I can remember sitting at the fabulous library there at UWA, looking onto this grass quadrangle, and I had an essay that was due in at five o'clock that afternoon. Let's say it was 5,000 words, and I'd done 2,000, you know. And I looked out the window, I was staring there, and I just looked back at the paper, and I just ripped it in half, went, walked straight up to the registrar's office, withdrew from my entire course, and told my parents a fortnight later. <laughs> with the intention of going to NIDA. You know, right. I mean, it didn't occur to me that I wouldn't get in, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the confidence of the ignorant, you know. Yeah. But I, and so I saw out the rest of that year doing... <laughs> I just remembered. This, uh, you know, I actually went up to the registrar's office and withdrew from my entire course and that afternoon phoned CES or, you know, the, the equivalent of Centrelink or, or JobSeek or whatever, you know, the job-finding yeah. um, organisation then. And this was back in the day when jobs were so aplenty, they phoned me the next morning and said, we've got a job for you. And I went, what? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> what was it? I was, get this, an automotive radiator specialist with... And the 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 funny the humour of their name didn't even occur to me until I'd well left them with a company called A F Hoare and Sons, H O A R E. They may well still be there. It was a wonderful corporate, lovely place, but it was I mean it took well, a fish yeah. out of water. Yeah. I mean it was not exactly my natural environment, you know, sort of inspecting radiators under HP. Holden's going, oh, no, no, we can, we can patch that up for you and getting one of the boys on the floor to, you know, weld it or whatever. Or, oh, no, you'll need a new one. <laughs> anyway, so I did that for, for, well, until, you know, Christmas time. At that time in Perth, you having the opportunity to work some, with some amazing directors too who were present in the town. Yeah. So we had John Milson who ran the Hole in the Wall Theatre. Uh, we had Arnie Neem. Aninimi, who was the director of the Perth State Theatre Company, ridiculously called the National Theatre Company, and um, as it was then, I think it's whatever it's got a different name now. It's um, Black Swan, is the exactly, yeah, no. and um, and also Raymond Domandai, who went on to run Hole in the Wall, the Hole in the Wall Theatre after John had um, John Milson had stepped aside. So we. 
anybody else I'm missing out. Anyway, so Edgar Metcalf was there, of course. He was, but not. He was not. Uh, I uh, we we our paths didn't cross in right. terms of um, working at UDS um, or doing plays there. And so we had these wonderful. In effect, it was like a semi-pro um, company because there was so little theatre in WA in yeah. Perth at that time. There were the two companies and and um, whatever. Two into the match. Whatever two into the match. Well, that's right. Or more, more, more. Actually, I think the match was probably. Um, in disuse, more or less, then because it was pre-refurbishment. Right. But where they did used to go was the Regal, the Regal, Regal in Subiaco, yeah. and we got you know Derek Nimmo, and we got all the you know the, the you know Run for Your Wife and Two and Two Makes Sex. <laughs> all those farces. Oh, hilarious! So popular. Yeah. yeah. So you got into NIDA. I got into NIDA. Do you remember what you auditioned with? I do. I had done. A production of Phaedra, ridiculously miscast as Hippolytus, um, with, directed by King Cumber Dobby, who is no longer with us. And uh, so there were big, chunky classical speeches in that when I used one of those. Forgot my lines and started again. And, um, and what was my modern piece? I did a modern, um, one of the monologues from an Alan Aikborn collection of one act plays called. Oh, what's it called? Confusions or confusions? Is is, it is that is that? Yeah, oh, there you go. And um, which was just you know my comedy speech. A nice <laughs> contrast. That's right. Yeah. And I can remember John Clark was there on the. He'd been the person who travelled over to uh, audition people. Um, and he said, "So have you got a song?" And I went, "Oh," um, and I said. <laughs> A song that, um, and you know, sold it for a million dollars. That dad had sung to us when we were kids, and it was you know down in the meadow in a itty bitty pool, swam three little fishes, you know, <laughs> blah blah blah. Anyway, I sold it and uh, got in. Brilliant. Who were your teachers at that time? Uh, George Whaley was the head of acting when we were in first year, and then second and third year. Uh, our head of acting was Aubrey Meller, and I mean the wonderful Keith Bain, the you know the iconic Keith Bain was head of movement, and uh, um, and Doreen, oh, I can't blank on her surname, was a beautiful, wonderful head of voice. Um, Did you enjoy the three years? Because drama school can be pretty tough on. Yeah, so, look, I, I did. I mean, it was the make. It was. My friends, my close, my two dearest friends are two of the people who were in my year right. at NIDA. So, and... It's a shared experience. It's quite unique. It's a hothouse, yeah. 24 hours a day, three years where you do play after play after play, and the outside world doesn't exist. And it's... um. And you're you're nineteen, you know. So you're you're coming into your sexual identity. If you you know, or I was anyway. And um, and it was, yeah. I mean, people who haven't been to night. I can remember being at a dinner party once, and there were uh, you know quite a few nightettes around the table from various years. And the conversation inevitably is you know funny stories about neither. And it's like. Oh, you guys, this is what you're talking about. And, you know, and, well, 
well, yeah. Not that we talk about it all the time, but there's no question. And especially NIDA at that time, it was small and it was... Um, You're working in the old buildings That's too, right. We were up in the... It was before it was done at the parade, uh, Anzac Parade. And so it was sort of um, done on the smell of an oily rag. There were no extracurricular classes or whatever. There were just the core teachers and core class. And it felt like a little um, hermetic... Um, wonderful doing and you we all felt so lucky to be there we felt um it, yeah it was and you got to i mean at that time in 79881 there really was only NIDA in the VCA yeah there were only the two drama schools in the country yes. now every tertiary institution's got one attached um and i mean Waffa was the next one to come along and then but yeah, it was so. It was. Um, we felt extraordinarily lucky to be there, and and you know we happy few. And we hadn't yet seen the immense success of certain Australians in Hollywood yet either. No, that's right. In fact, be, having a film career, m me raised as somebody who went mad for the theatre in the 70s, it was all about plays and players from London, or you know that sort of thing, and so theatre was what I aspired to because it was what I saw. But and the notion of that um that a film career I, I just I mean it's something I love doing, mm. but it was not the initial aspiration to be that because it wasn't part of my world, the the world that I that I saw. I was I my I was my mother was a theatre, you know, it was all about theatre at home. Mm -hmm. Did the course have much film content at that point? Two weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> we had two weeks. We had two weeks at the Australian Film and Television School, and I think we had two weeks at the ABC, you know, learning how to do TV acting. Uh, it was fantastic. <laughs> so you graduate in 81. Yeah. Do you go straight into work? Or was it first finding an agent, I guess? Do you find an agent? Easily yes, on? I was with June, the beautiful June Can for many years. And for the last hundred years, I've been with Sue Barnett since she started her agency. Um, and that was back in the day when, June, when agents could just phone up the casting agent and say, I've got this lovely boy, just put him in the next episode, will you? Bang. And you'd be down to Melbourne doing cop shop or whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different world. It's just because there was less competition around, or well, um, I, I suppose so. I suppose it was less, but it was also um, I, I mean, maybe that works to an extent with with newbies now, you know. But it just seemed. But if you're talking VCA and NIDA as the main tertiary institutions producing. There is less competition. Yeah, true, absolutely. Now you've got Queensland, you've got of course. Whopper, yeah. you've got, and, and, and they're all producing, what, uh, 30, 40 graduates a year. I know, I know, and I feel, look, there are things to be gotten from spending three years doing a, a, a theatre course, an acting course, that can enrich your life, whether you go on to have a successful professional career or not. Yeah. Um, so I'm not decrying that, but I do think there are an awful lot of graduates being turned out who, I mean, you know, there's just no way. I mean, just the numbers don't, 
the industry Stack isn't up. big enough to no. provide work for everyone. No. So what are the roles that you've been cast in when you graduate? Because at NIDA, you're being watched, I suppose, by agents coming to see productions. Yes, yeah, so in my final year, I did Malvolio in Twelfth Night, and um, that was a sort of, like, showcase play. And then the other one we did, directed by Terry Clark, was um, One Flew Over the Cookies Nest. That was the, the final play. And um, so... And then we had the agents' show day, you know. I can't remember what I did for that. But... Um, but it's good. I mean, I think my, I remember getting some, like, t- doing the Crawfords TV stuff, and um, I did, you know, five months on Sons and Daughters stuff, and but my and I did um, uh, something with the oh, I can't remember now. But my my for me the step into the main stage that I went yes was being cast in Nicholas Nickleby that the Sydney Theatre Company did, which was a huge, for those who are not old enough, young enough to know what I'm talking about, Nicholas Nickleby was eight and a half hour play that was done um, in a four hour block and a four and a half hour block, part one and part two, and then on Wednesdays and Saturdays, all the way through, of the Charles Dickens novel, Nicholas Nickleby. And it, it had a cast and this is a play, not a musical. It had a cast of 42. I mean, it was huge. Um, and a small orchestra with a conductor. I mean, it was just... And as a young actor, there were, there were a bunch of us youngies in it. It was like, you know, Ruth Cracknell was in it and Ron Hadrick was in it. I mean, all these... It was to talk about, you know, sit at the feet of the masters. It was just filled with fabulous actors and we did that and at the Theatre Royal and then at the States in, in Melbourne and, and at the festival. Because it's, yeah. it's epic theatre isn't it? Totally. So what's it like telling those stories on such a big canvas? I love it. Yeah. I, 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 I mean I love Belvoir Theatre is my favourite theatre space I describe it as the Goldilocks theatre like it's just right it's not so small as to be underwhelming and it's not so big as to be a a cog in the wheel you know of of the machination Uh, it it feels the human scale of Belvoir plus that slightly out of kilter off centre stage configuration that was just by happenstance it is the theatre that I feel proprietary about and about the, about the the work and the ethos and the 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 taste and uh, it's the place that I always over the years came back to and felt at home in. Uh, but back to your original question, I love at the same time. It's, it's a different thing playing to big theatres with the balcony. Mm-hmm. You know, I was once told by John Milson, in fact, going back to Perth days, he said, Hart, he called everybody Hart, play to the balcony, even if there's not one there, because apart from anything else, you'll be heard, and your face will be lit. I mean, he, there was, that was exaggerating, but there was the truth in what he said, you know, um, uh, that you don't play to the fourth row, you play the people in the back row, 
deserve to be included in the performance as well. Mm. How you do that without bellowing is the skill of the actor. But it's true that um, too often, I feel, the people in the back quarter of the auditorium are not taken account of. Yeah. But nine hours of storytelling, tremendous stamina. Yeah, well... Physical well, and emotional. True, and, but it was, it was Dr. Theatre, you know, I mean, and I mean, we had... Well, everybody doubled and trebled and quadrupled in terms of roles and parts, apart from John Howard, who was devastatingly handsome and young and gorgeous, and Tony Taylor as Smike, who they both... As a duo, it was a tour de force. Um, they were the only people who got to play just the one role. Although maybe Kate Nickleby as well, Sue Lyons, who now lives in the States. Um, and But we were young, and the audience is just... I mean, it was... It was one of two things I've been in that every single night there was a standing ovation... Was the other lame is? It was. Yeah. <laughs> Another big epic story. Absolutely, but and in the same theatre, the Theatre Royal. I love that theatre, and um, but yes, there was. It was so that energy that was. Um, it was a two-way thing. Yeah. And plus, we were twenty-five, so we had you know unlimited energy. Yeah. You've also given us a tremendous legacy with the play, the Popular Mechanicals. Thank you. Tell us about the genesis of that. Was that an easy process to construct such an original, inspired piece of silliness? Well, the genesis of the Popular Mechanicals, which, as you say, was... Uh, uh, well, it was, nonetheless, a, a, a seminal chunk of my life. Um, Tony Taylor and I had done were both involved in a, a project called Stand Up for Shakespeare at the Sydney Theatre Company where with Dr Philip Parsons and Wayne Harrison they tried to recreate the what they figured were the um, playing conditions in Shakespeare's time. So we did theatre, uh, did the plays on a raised platform in daylight hours and that sort of thing. And Tony Taylor had written a bawdy jig for the end of Hamlet, you know, to, to send them out laughing, which apparently was an Elizabethan tradition that they ended with a, you know... After all those corpses... On exactly. Stage. So after the tragedy, there was a bit of, you know, a bit of fart humour to send them into the night. And um, so Tony had written uh, Beryl the Widow for that, which we... we, we and I was starred as Beryl the Widow. And um, it was fantastic fun. And we had the idea to do... Wouldn't it be great to do an evening of Elizabethan vaudeville? And we heard on the grapevine that the November-December play at Belvoir Street Theatre had fallen out of the... Uh, the slot was vacant again. And so we went, well, let's go and pitch our idea. So we went to organise a meeting, Tony Taylor and I, with um, Chris Westwood. This was before uh, Belvoir had a... Uh, I mean, uh, Neil Armfield was the sort of nominal... AD, but it was it was before it was uh, um, made solid, and um, so we met with uh, 
Chris Westwood and pitched our idea, which was, you know, a couple of sentences of um, Elizabethan Bourneville. It could be really good. And um, she said, um, well, look, mm, OK, look, go away and work. Go away for a fortnight. Just flesh that out a bit. So we did. We went back, met with her in a fortnight. And um, I think by that stage, I'd had the idea of taking the clown from Mr. Night's Dream and using that as the coat hanger of the narrative. Um, and on which we could hang bits of Elizabethan vaudeville and, and comic stuff. And, uh, and she liked that idea. And she said, well, mm, go away and work on that and come back in a fortnight. And we did that process about four or five times. And... Which was, retrospectively thinking about it, a wonderful way to work. Because it forced... We, the foundations, the, the foundation bricks, we were... We weren't. We were having to put in place. We, you know, it was like okay, that, and then that scene, and then that, and then that could happen there, and then the, you know, and then I, I had a couple of plays down at the MTC, so went away for a few months and uh, uh, came back, and then we had about four weeks before the. Oh, and but we had managed to get Jeffrey Rush on board as director before. Uh, by the fourth or fifth meeting with Chris Westwood, so he was a you know starry theatre name at that point, still is, and um, so that was that was another you know lure, and um, and then we we sat down and across the table from each other and um, really at that stage I'm simplifying enormously, but it was almost like joining the dots by that stage because we we had. What, decent structure we had the structure yeah. and um, and then you know we nicked a dialogue from Shakespeare and made up our own funny stuff and all that and then we <laughs> oh to be young we had <clears throat> excuse me a grand total of three weeks rehearsal and one preview and um, <laughs> you know I can remember suddenly getting to like maybe the night before the preview or two nights before the preview and I realised that I had not learned one, uh, once more into the breach which was a, the whole speech was like yeah, yeah I'll do that and I'll do my, um, my I'll change into my tuxedo during that speech okay fine then I realised oh fuck I haven't learned it so I said, like, it was like it was just flying by the seat of your pants and we had one preview and in the 20-hour period before we next before opening night, it was just a massive cut and paste. Okay, that's out, that's out, that didn't work. This we put that here, da 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 da. So it became this memory test of what was the running order of the show, yeah. let alone what was still in yeah. or not. But it was one of those opening nights that um, you could only dream about. You know, it just everything just came together, and it was um, one of the great nights in the theatre for me you know it was just uh, it was fantastic and then Pop Mex went on to be really for Paul Blackwell and Tony Taylor myself Kerry Walker um, Gillian Hyde initially then Lucia Mastrantone um, uh, Peter Rowley and then uh, Billy Brown uh, it, it became for four or five years, you know, a good chunk of our life. We toured it everywhere, and and uh, it was it was great. And it was um, it was. Look, I still meet people who I perhaps haven't seen for thirty years, and they go, "Hello, da da." Oh, I saw Pop Mex, and it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. You know, it's still 
people had this unequivocal response to it and remember it fondly, which, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> Thank you very much. And what a joy to perform. I mean, it must have been a riot every night. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, I mean, you know, oh, to be young, indeed, you know, it's like... This, I mean, the sweat factor was just enormous. I mean, you just wring out the clothes, and the way I used to, we all just used to throw ourselves about physically, bruises everywhere, and you know, but you know, it was fantastic, Dr. Theatre, who cares? And how wonderful it's had such a long life. Also, I've seen productions at NIDA and the STC and the community theatre groups and schools. Yes, it's, it's, yeah. um, it's, it's lovely. Um, and still, you know, um, often it's nowadays it's schools, but it's, it's, a, it's a good thing for schools to do because sometimes they don't necessarily have to do the whole thing. They can do scenes from it, it you know, just clown work, Shakespeare, funny stuff, all that sort of thing. So it does get done by schools. You know, we'll, we'll request the rights on an irregular, regular basis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now you're back on the boards very soon. I am. How exciting. I'm so thrilled. My, one of my great theatre regrets when I found myself in the wheelchair thinking it was all over was that I hadn't gotten to play Chekhov. And I love Chekhov. And if I say so myself, I'd always thought we were quite a good match for each other. But um, I just it never came to me. I was offered one production way back and and I was unavailable but really you know it just was our paths didn't cross and it was a real well my great theatre regret was not having done Chekhov and I was just articulating that to Aubrey Miller one of the world's great Chekhov authorities um, a matter of well probably three months ago now and two weeks later I got the offer to play Gaev in the cherry orchard at Belvoir Street. So I texted him immediately and said, it's not over till October. (laughs) (laughs) So we're about to go into rehearsal for that. And um, I could not be, you know, it's got to the stage where I shaved off my beard but left my goatee and Hugo saw me the day after and went, ah, step by step to the play. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it stays or not, I have no idea. But it's, I'm now at the point where when I put my head on the pillow, that's what I think about, you know. So Gaev is the brother? He's the brother. Uh, he and Ranyevskaya are brother and sister and own the Cherry Orchard. So they are the two old guard that the new guard, if you will, or the new, the, the, the new folk. Mm. I, I mean, you know, the, it's their, their era is, ceases to be exist in their lifetime. All that they've come to expect, the sense of entitlement, the generational ownership of, of land um, falls away. And Gaiaf is just such a touch wood, my one superstition, touch wood. I, I'm so I I just could not be more thrilled to be playing Cherry Orchard, but in particular that role. Yeah. I love the role. Yeah. All actors create a backstory for their character in preparation. For what do they? Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> well, I better get cracking. We, 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 yeah. we hear that some actors create yeah. backstories yeah. just to sort of consider given circumstances and flesh out the character. Yeah, no, sorry, I didn't. <laughs> Will you consider? Gaiaf in a chair, and why he's in a chair? 
wheelchair? Well, I decided that it's, it's, it's uncanny, it's spooky, but I think he's got exactly what I've got. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You know, yeah. look, yeah. I mean, there is... Yes, Guy's in a wheelchair. I'm in a wheelchair. Mm. Um... We obviously don't find out why, but, you know, it's not as if um, I'm asking people to not see the wheelchair, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, although, it was interesting, um, people did, but go harking back to Twelfth Night four years ago, which was the first time I went back on the stage after a ten-year break, one of the things that people would say, uh, meaning it and lovely beautifully so as a as a compliment was after the first scene i didn't even notice the wheelchair i mean it would have been fine with me if they had but i mean i i totally get what you're saying and thank you but i mean so there is that which is you know I, but no i think gaif is in a wheelchair yeah right i think he is great company that you're you're in also couldn't be better. Yeah. Couldn't be better. I mean, really, it's just like, just Eamon, there's still three, well, as of the other day, it's, it, there's still, I think, two or three roles he hasn't cast. And I think somebody became unavailable. Anyway, just a beautiful, beautiful, intelligently, um, there's logic behind every piece of casting. I mean, it's just, I just think the cast is beautiful. And Pamela Ray was your sister. I know. And the final, get this, the last time Pamela and I worked together was at Belvoir in a play called The Little Cherry Orchard. You're joking. I'm not. That was the last play we did, like, 20 years ago, whatever. Right. And um, it was a modern Russian play called The Little Cherry Orchard. Similar characters, or...? No. no. There was no, no... The... the if there were similarities, I've forgotten them. But um, no, I think that I have no idea why. Your life's full of all sorts of serendipities at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, uh, I'll take it. Take it. <laughs> Serendipity, yum. Well, Keith, to, um, to quote a lyric from Hello, Dolly, it's so great to have you back where you belong. Oh, thank oh, you, so. Peter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you for such a delightful conversation and um, chookers for the cherry orchard. Thank you very much. The Cherry Orchard plays the Belvoir stage from May 29th to June 27th. The cast includes Pamela Rabe, Peter Carroll and my guest today, Keith Robinson. Bookings can be made at www.belvoir.com.au. Keith is a super bloke and a fine actor. It's a great opportunity to see him in action in this beautiful classic play by Anton Chekhov. Another great episode of Stages, eh? Check out other available episodes for listening at www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for tuning in. Keep well, keep warm. I'll catch you next time. Bye.